0: Hello, and welcome to the Human Entropy Podcast, a podcast where we can discuss the chaos, the adversity, and the triumph that is being human. I'm Felicia Parker, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm passionate about sharing the resilience I see in other people that inspire me to chase what makes me feel most alive. This is a place to be a friend, a place to encourage, and a place to challenge. This is Human Entropy. This is a really exciting episode for me because I got the chance to interview a New York Times bestselling author. Her name is Michelle Harper. Her book is called The Beauty and Breaking, and I've actually talked about her book in the episode that I did on race. So I guess this is where I self-promote and tell you to go listen to that episode. Anyways, it was just such an honor to be able to talk with her and hear all that she had to say and get a chance to pick her brain about her journey of healing And her belief of interconnectedness amongst all of us as humans. And it was just such an honor. It's a dream to be able to say I interviewed a New York Times bestselling author. Thanks so much for listening. I'm so excited. I love your book. So this is very exciting for me. You're the second author that I've interviewed. And it's good. I love a good memoir. And it's a good one. It's a great one. But thank you so much for doing this and uh, setting aside time because I'm sure it's crazy for you right now.
1: But this is my pleasure. Thank
0: you. I'm so excited about it. But um, so to start, I would love if you would actually give a very quick summary of Mm. your book.
1: So, The Beauty and Breaking, um, it's a memoir Mm. and it does chronicle a little about my life and Mm. my journey in healing from a difficult childhood um, in which my, my father was a batterer. So o- overcoming, learning, growing, healing from that time in the abuse. And then it's interwoven between patient stories because each of us has our own story of healing. So whether it's the female veteran who's healing from her abuse during her time in the military um, or a man who's overcoming addiction is alcoholism all just interwoven, because for me, it was very important to show our interconnectedness as human beings. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I could go on, so we'll just lose <laughs> <to> that.
0: <laughs> Love it. Um, if it's okay with you, I wanna read the two parts that I wrote down from your introduction that made me be like, yep, I'm reading the rest of this because this is good. So you said in your introduction, like everyone, I am in this world for only a brief time, and as for many, blessings abound in my life, and they abound amid my, the struggle, amid my struggle. Over the decades, I've learned to cultivate a personal state of stillness. As a child, that stillness grew from dissociation I stumbled upon that allowed me to better endure life with a father who was a batterer and with a family legacy of victimhood. And then I don't think that these are back to back, but as a Black woman, I navigate an American landscape that claims to be post-racial when every waking moment reveals the contrary. An American landscape that requires all women to pound tenaciously against the proverbial glass ceiling, which we've since discovered is made of palladium, the kind of glass that would sooner bow than shatter. Mm -hmm. And I I actually have already quoted that in an episode before that I've done with two of my friends. We all talked about race. So I guess to start, because you do kind of go in order in your book. You talk really personally about your childhood, specifically the dynamic of your house, thanks to your father um, and your other family members. Um, But it's incredible to me that from your writing at such a young age, it seems that you were able to recognize, hold on, this isn't what I want, this isn't helping, this is only hurting, and choose something different for yourself um, in your own life that you would create. And so I'm just curious on your opinion on trauma and on the difference between childhood trauma and adulthood trauma. You do talk a lot about it, and I have another quote written down later, but I'm, I'm doing an episode on trauma in mm-hmm. the near future, and one of the questions I plan on asking my guest is if she thinks that it's possible to experience adulthood trauma without somehow bringing up childhood trauma. I'm just curious to know what you think.
1: I feel it would be impossible, honestly, because, and it's it's kind of amazing that you bring this up because I've been meditating a lot Mm -hmm. recently. When I say recently, I mean in a different way over the last 48 hours on trauma Mm -hmm. and the way that it shapes us, because it does, and we all have our experiences with it. I mean, Mm -hmm. as we talk about just being in this society the way that we're raised as women or as people of color or as people who are disabled, or you know, even the legacy of whiteness, mm. it's really dysfunctional. So we all experience trauma and then it plays out in our lives. And I was specifically thinking about, you know, I, I speak about, for example, a young child when I'm working um, who's brought in. We don't know what's wrong with her, she's stuporous. And we're thinking, well, maybe, because there's this history of like recent infection, maybe it's just a febrile seizure that we can see in little kids. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's pretty benign. They recover well. Um, it's not much of an issue medically. But she's not speaking. She's not awake. And we're just evaluating what we can get from her body there. And I, I'm working in an ER where it's it's not a pediatric; We don't admit pediatrics at the time. So... I'm just going to stabilize her medically, get the lab work, get the x-rays, and then, because she's not waking up, even if it's a febrile seizure, it's a little more complicated, I'll transfer her to a pediatric hospital where she can be observed longer. Mm -hmm. I end up ordering an extra blood test. I didn't really need it. I didn't know why. I'll spare you the medical weeds of the discussion, but it's an extra liver test. Mm -hmm. I just leave it. There are worse things to do than that. And then I see when I get the results back, that it's elevated. And then I get a call from the radiologist that, no, there isn't pneumonia, but she has broken ribs in different stages of healing. Mm -hmm. So she's had physical trauma that's happened over time. Mm -hmm. And I look at this little girl who's so beautiful and so innocent and just kind of moans there as we put IVs in her as we examine her and then ultimately as she's rolled out of the department. And I'm reminded that she has been through so much and it's changed her physical body. It will definitely change one day when she wakes up, God willing. It will change the way she experiences life. And then as she grows, and there will be more trauma from life, that is the deal of it, she's then gonna have to decide She couldn't decide in her youth what would work for her or not, how she would survive or not. But as she gets older, she will have to make those decisions. And not only about how her life will continue, but how she will dissolve the past trauma, Mm. disincorporate the past trauma from her body. And that will be the only path forward for her. There's no one or the other. They're inextricably linked.
0: Yeah. I don't know that I've ever heard someone say dissolve past trauma before. That's a really great picture. That's a great way to describe it. And that's a great answer. (laughs) I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I'm 25, but I feel like in my 20s, especially, even four years ago, when I think back to 21, I'm like, That feels like forever ago, but wow, I'm still picking up the pieces from stuff that happened in that year. And then I've always been picking up the pieces from stuff that happened when I was six or seven, you know, like, so it's, I agree with you, (laughs) all that to say. In your book, you're very incredibly aware of what's going on. And you have a great sense of being even keeled. And you also have a great balance between head and heart. And I'm just wondering, because you have such a not-so-even-keeled job, (laughs) and you experience so much chaos and disorder and insanity, I'm sure, are you able to find that stillness in the moments? Are you able to do that? Or I guess is it more of when you look back on it, you're able to write about it in a very matter-of-fact, but still appropriately emotional way?
1: It's both. Okay. It's both. In the moment, certainly. And that comes from, it really comes from my childhood in that way. Mm-hmm. Because when you're young in an abusive home, I mean, I'm sure I don't have to tell m- many people this who've been through it. You just get a snapshot. So like when I'm with my father, if he was attacking my mother and my, my brother was trying to intervene to save her and to keep us safe, All you have is that moment to decide, okay, is this immediately life threatening? Is there something I have to do now? Is it likely to blow over so we'll be okay? Or maybe it won't escalate at all. So having to, even from a young age, seven, nine, 10, 14, having to make those split second decisions and the only way to make those decisions is if I was still and cold and removed from the situation and just making an analysis right then and there. Mm-hmm. So in that way, I feel I was unwittingly groomed to do emergency medicine because mm-hmm. that's exactly what I have to do in my job now. Mm-hmm. So I'm, our, I'm, I'm practiced at it. So it's harder for me to get, I mean, of course there are things that scare us, but it's, it's truly harder for me to get scared at my job when I grew up in a home of violence as a child because that was the scariest part of my life. Um so no, I do it. What what's harder though, the harder part I think is is then going back to understand what has happened and to process what has happened. Mm -hmm. Doing that in a personal level, that's a little harder. So that for example, I I always go back to the examples. I feel like anchoring in stories just clarifies everything. Yeah. When I was in the ER and they they brought in the Actually, it's, it's interesting, these, many of these examples have to do with children as we uh-huh. speak. <laughs> yeah. But when they brought in the, the baby who was unresponsive.
0: That's what I was thinking of uh, when we were talking about having right. a process. Yeah. And yeah. When,
1: when they brought in the bra- baby that was unresponsive, and we all knew, because we know, we've done this long enough, we know when, the, when a body, just a body, because the spirit's gone, when a body is being rolled in, mm. but it was a baby, So we did everything we could anyway. We worked on this child, pumped on its chest, put a breathing tube down, gave it so many medications to try and bring the life back, to literally try and resurrect this infant. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to work, it didn't work, but we needed to do it so that the family would know we tried, so Mm -hmm. that we would know that we tried. And then all we could do was make space for the grief, So in the moment, even something like that, in the moment, that was very hard, but I had to pull myself back from it. Mm -hmm. And it was later when I got home, when I thought about it, when when I thought about the emotions that I stuffed down when I was trying to help this child and I thought about my nephew who looked like the child and mm-hmm. I thought about my plans for the children I wanted to have but my marriage broke apart and I didn't. And so when I got home, that's when I cried. And thank God that I did. It was so liberating because I feel that if, if I didn't allow myself that release and the time and the space to think about those personal losses, that, that it would have just contributed to my personal trauma that I then would have carried around with me moving forward. Yeah. So, so it works both ways.
0: Yeah, that part of your book was a very impactful one. And also eye-opening for me to, I mean, Grey's Anatomy is one thing, <laughs> but <laughs> to hear from an actual real life doctor and not Meredith Grey. <laughs> it's, uh, right. it It was very eye-opening and moving and very important. And I'm really glad that you included it because it was impactful. Speaking of childhood carrying into adulthood, um, I'm curious, were you a writer as a child or were you mm. ever, was that ever on your radar to write a book?
1: The book part wasn't really <laughs> on my radar till residency. Okay. Just the seeds of it, the ideas of it. But mm-hmm. in my childhood, I almost, I wanted to say no, but it's not exactly true because I was, I was the type of kid who would journal and write poetry specifically. Mm-hmm. So that I would do, but I felt I would go into the, the sciences or, or help somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, it wasn't on my radar to write a book. And then when I was a resident, so for medical training, we do, you know, regular fourth, you know, till 12th grade, and then college, and then medical school. And then uh, residency is the period of our specialty training. So I did emergency medicine residency. Mm -hmm. So during that time, I would have interactions with patients that stayed with me, like the woman who, she had to be in her, her 30s or 40s, who was brought into the ER for care because she had tiny stab wounds all over her body, stab wounds all over her body, not deep enough to kill her, but certainly just such a number, such a quantity to cause pain. And I thought to myself, and it was by her ex, mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, what happened? Like what, what is the dynamic in their lives? that brought them to this point, that he would commit this act against her repeatedly, the the time involved to repeatedly inflict injuries on this woman just so that she would suffer. And then how is she gonna go on to heal from this and then most certainly be left with the scars of it, Mm -hmm. the physical scars that probably will never go away. And then the emotional ones that God willing, she will work through. Mm And it was those instances that lingered. And I thought to myself, sometime I'm going to, I hope I will be able to write about this because I think it could be part of a structure of healing because I, this is why I wrote the book. Honestly, my mission was that, well, there were several, but the main one was my feeling is that in healing ourselves, yes, that's good to heal ourselves so we can have a fulfilled existence, an authentic fulfilled existence, but then we can also be a support system for others who also want to heal. And then, if we do that, we can uplift society. So the seeds of the book started then and stayed with me. And then, then I had to write it to mm-hmm. fulfill this mission.
0: Yeah. So in the patient stories um, or the experiences, were you writing them down in the moment, or were they just so stuck with you? That you're able to, with great detail, recall exactly what happened when you did start writing the book.
1: Yeah, that's you know that's one of the benefits of memoir that I could. It's highly curated, and I see thousands of patients like over the years. So Mm -hmm. these were the ones that stayed with me in particular, Mm -hmm. and I felt um, worked best with the narrative arc of this book. Mm -hmm. I picked them for that reason. The other thing is that I wrote this over many years. Uh-huh. <laughs> Some of the cases were, were more contemporaneous at the time. Little did I know, oh yeah, this book is going to happen like four years later. So, yeah. so now they're a long time ago, but they weren't at the
0: time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I have a ton of questions written down beyond the ones I asked you, but I just have snippets of what you've written that I just want to pick your brain about. Yeah. okay so the first thing that i have written down i believe this was after you discuss the relationship um, Mm post-divorce with the man you named him colin in the book uh having to break up part ways because you had to choose health for yourself essentially Mm -hmm. and so you say in my life i chose a different pattern from the one I was born into, so I would not replay my past trauma with anyone. It was worth creating good with the right person at the right time. I am worth being healthy with a person who also chooses health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I sent that to a lot of friends. <laughs> I'm like, I think that maybe she's on to something. Here. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you feel that that's a mindset that you had to adapt because of that circumstance, or that was just always the, gonna be the case for you?
1: That was, that was always going to be the case, unless I chose differently. So what I mean by that, mm-hmm. when we were speaking about trauma before, mm-hmm. and how it influences our future decisions, again, whatever, whether that's personal in the family, I mean, there's usually some kind of trauma in families, or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or social, Um, what's taught to us as women as acceptable, Mm. what we're taught to expect as being reasonable, what we're taught to expect we should deserve. So until the time we examine that and deconstruct it and then make our own decisions where we don't accept the stories that other people gave us, where we don't allow our decisions to be automatic, that's, that's that's the only way we'll be able to make our own informed, honest decisions. So with Colin, I realized he was, he was going through a really difficult divorce. I'm like, protracted. <laughs> and, and, um, and then he, began, he started to reenact his own trauma. He had difficulties in his childhood with a father who was absent and then passed away, with a mother who was verbally abusive, with an ex who was like the worst of his mother because he was reenacting it. And then he started reenacting, like falling into a similar pattern, not realizing like in the midst of this war that he was in, not being able to distinguish who he was fighting anymore and reenacting those patterns with me. And then I had to ask myself, what is it that I want? And because I had chosen, I did, my decision was made, I chose health. I chose positive relationships, first and foremost, with myself, because it, because it will not and cannot happen if I don't choose that with myself. And then from there, it would be the same with all of my relationships moving forward. So because the decision was made, then there was, one, there was only one option, and that option was to leave him. And that was the loving thing to do for him. Because I feel like love means you don't enable dysfunction in other people. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. Uh, Codependence is something else. You just ride it out and be toxic together. Uh, But that's that's not a viable option for me. (laughs)
0: Yeah, good. (laughs) You say, what a critical life lesson to learn to distinguish enabling from helping Codependence from Love, Attachment to Reenacting the Grief of Childhood Loss from Allowing for the Sweetness of Self-Determination.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I feel like someone needs to give you a, a show <laughs> where you can get up. And I mean, I guess that's what this interview is. About <laughs> yes, yeah, so you did So people can it. go read the book because it's so worth reading. But um, it might be a dumb question. No. So many experiences. of experiences of your life probably led you to come to that realization of distinguishing all those things apart from one another but was it post breakup with Colin that led you to have you know a moment of revelation of realizing those things or I guess what was it that yeah made you realize those things
1: (laughs) honestly it was reflecting on my childhood, and a blessing of of life, is that circumstances will keep arising, so we can practice growth, we can practice our lessons, and we can crossroads where we can decide. So as I reflected on my parents' uh, relationship and the dynamic therein, my father being. Being abusive in many ways. I mean, sure, physically. But if somebody's physically abusive, they're obviously mentally, emotionally, spiritually abusive, um, financially manipulated, manipulative. It's all the same. Mm -hmm. And then my mother feeling beholden to it, that she is dependent on on that dynamic. So then it was acceptable because there was a fancy house at the time, before they lost everything, but there was like a fancy house and jewelry and cars and a certain status that, that was then acceptable, an acceptable model for her children. Now, interestingly, actually, it is very powerful that they then lost all of the finances because it's easy then to ask yourself, well, then what was it for? Mm. What was it for? Like what, what really was important? Like once you lose the trappings, once you lose like the physical matter, in, in that ways, it's, it's, a, it's an easy path, to, easier path to reflect about, was it all worth it? And certainly it was not, it, and, it, and it was harder for my parents to understand that because they were distracted by all the the social currency of it. Then I think that as I grew up and was in, it was was maybe, I mean, it certainly wasn't like that um, with Colin, but Mm. when it became emotionally problematic and then I was reminded and had to ask myself, wait, didn't I learn this lesson already? Mm. And if I learned the lesson already, What am I doing? And what is important to me and what am I choosing? So, and it's interesting because I weave in, yoga is very important to me. The Mm -hmm. physical practice of yoga, the asana. And it's a way of practicing. It's a way of remembering. It's a way of me creating space and silence. Mm -hmm. And not only is it like the physical practice where, where I literally feel like there's an energetic release but so much happens in that time, and just like with yoga, I can't go to the mat like six months and say I'm good, I'm done. The same is with these life lessons. Yes, I had to remember it with Colin so that I was better the next time, and I wouldn't. You, my my, my uh, I'm quicker on the uptake. So it won't happen. Will there be another Colin? Definitely not. There will not. Um, but it's life's way of teaching me, reminding me where I can make these decisions over and over again, just like I do on the yoga mat. I have more flexibility. Um, I learn more about my breath. I learn more about my body. I learn more about taking time and space for self-care. It's all the same, the the ritual, the practice. Yeah. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes (laughs) perfect sense. Well, speaking of not to dwell too much on childhood, but as before, it is intertwined into adulthood trauma. Um, This quote really struck home for me because I have been saying for a long time now with my own father issues, that sort of thing, it got to the point in my 20s, I had to come to a point of forgiving him for a lot of stuff. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that forgiveness is more for me than it is for him. And you say it, So beautifully, I want to read something that you write about it. You say, forgiveness condones nothing, but it does cast off the chains of anger, judgment, resentment, denial, and pain that chokes growth. In this way, it allows for life, for freedom. So that's what's at stake when it comes to forgiveness, freedom. With this freedom, we can feel better, be better, and choose better next time. Do you feel... That the forgiveness has been crucial with every experience of breaking and pain that you write about.
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking where to begin with that, because Mm -hmm. there's so many examples. That um, quote, a bunch of things happened in that chapter. Mm. It was around Victoria Honor. Which sometimes sometimes people ask me, you know, what's your what's your favorite story of all of them? It's a little hard to say because some of these some of these experiences that I discuss in the book are so difficult. So I don't know if I would say favorite, but one that stayed with me the most was that story about Victoria Honor, where we we deeply explore explore forgiveness, and this came up before where um, I, I meet her in that like the psychiatric section of the emergency department. Um, some hospitals had that where like the pediatric side, medical side, psychiatric part. Mm-hmm. So in the veterans hospital where I was, so many people were coming in for mental health related concerns that it was important to have a separate section,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, decreased stimulation where they could get better treatment. Mm-hmm. And she was coming in to she, just for medical clearance, it should be easy. She was young, healthy, black woman. Mm-hmm. I could be in and out of there It was the end of my shift. And I was only staying late to see more patients because the night doctor was gonna be alone and the department was full. And I just, it just felt really unfair to leave him in that position and also the patients waiting in that position. So I said, let me see this one quick and easy. And so, and it was, she was healthy, it was fine. And as I was leaving the room, I felt I should ask her about the trauma she had mentioned. I didn't know if she wanted to talk about it, but I felt like if, if I didn't ask, she brought up, she was healing from some trauma. And if I didn't ask, I would somehow be complicit. Mm. So I turned around and went back and I asked her what it was if she wanted to discuss it. And she did. And she told me how she was, while she was stationed in Afghanistan, she was raped by a, Two other servicemen, one a peer and one a, su- a supervisor, mm-hmm. and after doing that, that crime against her, against all of us, um, then they tried to ruin her career. Now she had since been reassigned; she was with a new squad, who was who had got her with a new therapist, who had um, reestablished her record so that she wouldn't lose her livelihood on top of everything else. Mm. And she had brought up how part of her healing was trying to become sober. She didn't know really how to be sober now in this world after everything she's been going through, but she's trying and her therapist is helping and she's going to church. And the pastor brought up that people really need to forgive. They just, that's the Christ-like thing to do. And she didn't know how to do that because they were monsters, and they they were. And so we talked about what it meant, and we explored forgiveness, and how what these men did to her was wrong. And that somehow, somehow, if she could tap into this part, just understanding the part in them that is so broken, so problematic, so degenerate, so depraved, and just understanding that that she could forgive that part of them not what they did what they what they did is not forgivable but that part of their humanity and that in being able to do that she could move on so that they couldn't continue to take more from her and that would be the point of it because she deserved she deserved so much more out of life and that's the point
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i feel that we we all have to do that in some ways in our life i mean I had to do that when I thought about my father so that I wouldn't reenact that childhood. And understanding that and being able to do that, when I was in that situation with Colin, I could let him go too. Mm -hmm. I had forgiven that part of people. I could forgive my father. I could forgive Colin and I could be free. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you know if the people, I mean your family, Yeah. people that you used to be in relationship with or any of your patients, do you know whether they've read your book or not? So,
1: so the the patient's part I'll speak about first, because it's the easiest. Uh Patients, I don't know, because in emergency medicine, we see people for a shift. We don't have ongoing, I mean, yes, we have our regulars, but generally we don't have ongoing relationships with patients. The other thing is, I mean, I did somersaults bent over backwards to change identifying information. Certainly, of course, all the names are changed. Even cases that were, I don't know how to put it, like salient cases, Mm -hmm. I uh, changed like one case in particular, I changed the location too, changed the location of the case Mm -hmm. just to ensure. So it'd be so difficult I want to say impossible for a patient to know because I see so many patients. And it's funny, I have had cases of mistaken identity. So I had a colleague of mine, she's another ER doctor, who said, Oh my gosh, I saw Miss Honor um, that you talk about in the book. And so I asked her, I was like, Oh, like, what was the situation? And she told her and she described her to me. And she told me her name. And I was like, Yeah, that was not at all my patient at all. <laughs> so, it'd be, so it'd be hard in that respect. But people I know, like where I didn't change the names, like their family members or exes, um, I have heard from about the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it's been really liberating for certain family members. Uh, like my brother was mm-hmm. really appreciative that I wrote the book, which felt really good. The feedback I've gotten from him uh, felt really good and supportive. It's been really hard for some other people. My f- Father has a very hard time with it, as I would imagine mm-hmm. he would, because now it's a it's a it's a public reckoning in a way. Yeah, it's not why I wrote the book, but that's what happens when you discuss difficulties that are hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been mixed reactions. When yeah. even my my ex husband, I heard from, he said he he had a lot to process with it, and yeah. he'd be back in touch. So so it's been interesting, actually. Yeah. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, I would imagine that surely some of your patients have read it because right. you are a New York times bestseller, <laughs> <laughs> which is so exciting for me. I only started this podcast in April and that's <laughs> awesome, but, uh, to have you on so early in the birth of the podcast, but just cause I'm curious for my own curiosity what was that like when you found out that you were a New York Times bestseller (laughs) (laughs) well
1: it happened quickly um because the book came out in July and because I'm a novice I my background is medical I mean I I feel like I feel like in a past life I was an artist I loved the arts in my free time before the pandemic if I had free time I mean I was in a museum I was going through theater schedules, um, finding out what play I could go to next, taking Mm -hmm. Amtrak to New York City to go to museums. So that's how I spend my time. So part Mm -hmm. of my soul clicks with artists. They're my favorite people to spend time with. Mm -hmm. So, but that's not my background. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea what to expect with any of this. So the book comes out And it's been a whirlwind of interviews with my virtual tour. Mm -hmm. Sadly, just virtual, Mm -hmm. but with the the virtual tour. And then I hear that I'm on the New York Times bestselling list. I don't even know what that means. And but Okay, this is a funny, funny, funny story. So I hear I'm on the list. I forget what number I was when I got the news. Do you you remember
0: how soon after the book was released that you got the news?
1: It had to be within a month. You know, I should remember this, right? Like when I'm working in the ER. It's crazy, I don't remember this. It was was like, it's like within a a month, Uh it had to have been within a month. Wow. And I remember my editor told me what number I was on the list. It was not like one, two, three, four or five. And so I said to him, wait a second, I know I'm on the list, but is that number okay? And he was like, "You do not get this at all you do I know you're a doctor, like you don't understand what these numbers mean or any of so, so now, looking back on it i just I just have to laugh so um but yeah, it was it's very exciting, but because I didn't understand any of it, and it was all a whirlwind mm-hmm. it's all I'm processing it all later, so now everything is hitting me now it's it's strange. one of my friends from yoga asked me. A month ago she said so how how are you how is it been during the tour and i told her it's really strange because i feel like the tour happened but i wasn't there in a way because there was no time to process it it was just mm-hmm. go 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 so yeah. so now that i have a little more space around it i'm appreciating even more the blessing of it all and it feels yeah. really sweet
0: yeah it's very cool and You absolutely deserve to be on the (laughs) best-selling list. I think I only have two more questions, but uh, no, three. How are you navigating now doing this, having interviews and follow-ups with your book and being an author as well as working in emergency medicine? How are you navigating that?
1: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Increasingly better. Okay. It's, It's been... Challenging. I will say this, um, I was really sad about, about the tour being virtual. I mean, obviously it's a pandemic. It must be virtual. (laughs) That is the right thing. It's the safe thing. It's the only, it's the only reasonable option. But I am the kind of person who I I vibe off of the energy of, of other people and groups. I like the connection of it. I mean, I'm also an introvert. So after I go out into the world and have these the powerful interesting beautiful interactions with people then I need to retreat and like short my energy again but I love that I love going to new hotels there has to be a gym in every hotel and like working out in a new gym or maybe going to a yoga class and checking out a local coffee shop and mm-hmm. like having a glass of wine at whatever local bar and chatting up with the bartender I really enjoy those interactions with humans so the virtual part has been hard I will also say that this launch was busier than, than I could have guessed it would have been. So the fact that it's virtual has made it possible. Mm. So that really, because between my shifts, there's no way in the world I would have been able to do even half of the events that I have done. So the fact that it's virtual has been a blessing. It's made the tour possible. It's made it, it's made it possible for, (laughs) for me to do all the interviews and work Although there was, there was a crashing point like a week ago where there was a day that, okay, so like five months into it, just over five months where I just couldn't get out of bed till two mm-hmm. o'clock. I was just physically so depleted and, and I had to sit with that and I had to say, okay, you need, you need to rest now because mm-hmm. you're one human being and you have to be able <laughs> to recover your energy stores. So that's what it's been like navigating it. But mm-hmm. there, there, there are fewer events now. So I've, um, like starting l- last week, I got back on my regular yoga schedule. I've caught up on some rest. Good. And now I'm, I'm focusing a lot on moving forward. Now, how will I navigate it? What will be? the next projects? How will it work with my schedule? Because it, it is really, it's, it's kind of, it, this is also hilarious that I'll run into people Like when I'm doing errands, people I might know from yoga, for example. And one woman who, we're not in touch, I kind of knew her from class, she said to me, so how's it going? And do you still work? She really was fully under the impression of two things, <laughs> that I was no longer working clinically, and then I was rich. And I said to her, So you definitely don't know how this works because I am working clinically and I am not rich. I mean, we can both speak that into existence, you know. maybe moving forward, but right now that's not the case. So I am definitely working full time. So I'm sorting out what the next steps will be. And more than just planning, I mean, part of it I can plan, but the other part I can't, and I just have to be open Mm -hmm. to see what happens next. And um, I'm good with that.
0: Yeah. What's bringing you joy right now in the middle of a pandemic?
1: I am so grateful for many things. I'm grateful for the work that I'm doing in the ER. I'm grateful for this, this, the new work I'm doing around the book, for the people that I'm interacting with. You know, some of the, I've gotten responses from family, from colleagues who say, oh, I'm glad you did this book and um, thank you for representing emergency medicine in this way. But then, hearing from people who aren't in the field, hearing from a a young man in South America who has had a really difficult struggle with anxiety and depression and suicidality, um, not feeling supported, losing his father at the hands of the police at a young age, saying that therapy and medication didn't really help him, he's better now, he's feeling better now. And when he read my book, he got his hands on it in South America, like, early. He said that he may not have a lot of human beings around him that are supportive, but finding books like this and knowing that there are people out there also on their own journey of healing and people out there also helping people on their journey to healing gives him a great sense of support. And it's saying how he's going to keep my book by his bed. My heart just breaks open when I hear stories like that. And that's just one. And that's why I did this book. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to provide that, to be able to be part of that network. That gives me a lot of joy. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's yoga. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, there's gratitude. I just downloaded. Because I have been so busy, I thought to myself, I have to take some time for myself and my usual mechanisms of going to the museum or taking a trip and going where, where there's a steam room. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can't do that right now. Um, but I should be able to have serenity right where I am. And that was, that was a breakthrough. I thought to myself, I can't go anywhere now, but why should it be the case that I go somewhere else to find peace? There has to be peace here and now and opportunities for it always. So I said, okay, I'm going to make my own mini retreat that I will have in between my shifts, in between my interviews, and I'll create that for myself. So when this pandemic is over, I will remember that I can have that retreat and serenity anytime I want in any place. And I don't have to make special arrangements and fly across the country or to another continent. So I I downloaded this new um, session with Eckhart Tolle, and so I have these little mini retreats during the day when I have free time.
0: I love that.
1: <laughs> that's what's bringing me joy. And this, this revelation, so simple revelation um, brings me joy.
0: Okay. Last question. Why should someone read your book if they haven't?
1: See, that's kind of, that's a little more difficult for me because you know what I feel? I feel that the statement that's to the effect of, um, the teacher arrives when the student is ready the mm-hmm. lesson is there when we're ready to hear it so i think that we we get what we need when it's time and i really feel read my book or don't it depends on what you need i happen to love it and feel it's worthwhile because again it demonstrates our interconnectedness as human beings
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we really do have everything in common, everything beneath, this, beneath the surface of our skin. And it's ridiculous the ways that we, like, for example, structural bigotry is absurd. Mm-hmm. Like, not a, we are, we're so much worse off for it. We're not as productive as a society. Um, we're not as healthy. Like, our medical outcomes are worse as a nation. It mm-hmm. simply doesn't work. So the recognition of our humanity that we share, should we choose it? The possibility to grow and heal and evolve, to touch freedom, to inhabit a space of peace. That's why I feel like the book is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. You know, that's for you or it's not. You have to decide.
0: Mm I mean, if I heard that answer, I would be like, I'm going to go read that. (laughs) I think that we have reached the end of the interview. Um, This was so cool. I'm really, really thankful for you taking the time and letting some amateur ask you questions (laughs) that's just a book enthusiast, but um, also I'm a healing enthusiast as well. (laughs) I'm just so thankful that you said yes and that this was possible.
1: Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. It was a delight spending this time with you today.
0: If you like what you've heard and want to support this project, if you're streaming on Spotify, it'd be amazing if you follow the podcast and download each episode as you stream them. If you're listening on the podcast's app, please give the show a five star rating and it will help out immensely. Most importantly, of course, share these episodes with the people that you know. Theme song and audio production by Tip Frank. Podcast artwork by Sierra Scott, Lydia Massey, and Kinsey Maroney. I appreciate everyone who's taken the time to listen to this. Until next time.